Welcome to Evangel Church. Our mission is to bring people into a life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ. For more information, visit us at evangelchurch.com. One of the healthiest things you could do is cry in the presence of God, church. I went through a long time in my life. I didn't say anything about that. I don't say it too often, but I went through a long time, like years, that I didn't cry at all. Um, and I'd gone through some difficulties in my family. I became so hardened, like nothing could make me cry. I was just ministering to someone in my office. They just got really bad news on Friday. Like earth-changing news, like cancer news. And um, they don't walk with the Lord right now. I tell you that because they told me that. And as we just talked and as I just shared, this person just began weeping. Not because of anything I had to say, but I believe because the Holy Spirit was moving and moving on their heart. And that's what, that's what that person said to me is, I don't cry. I never cry. I haven't cried for years. I, I got all this news and I didn't even cry yet. But there's that moment in God's presence. Just let your heart be broken in his presence. There's something so sweet that comes from that. It's like the oil from the alabaster jar. It's like just from, it just can pour out and the Lord doesn't waste any drop of that. If you have your Bibles, would you open with me today to Romans chapter 2. I believe what we just experienced actually has everything to do with what we're going to talk about today in God's Word. We're in a series called Kingdom Living. When we uh, walk through this series, the whole purpose of this series is to understand what it means to live in the way that Jesus has called us to live in this world. It's a way that we live not bound by the rules or the laws of this life and of this world, but bound by the law and the rule of his kingdom, the values that matter most to the heart of God, that they matter most to us, church. We're here. We've been left here as his witnesses. We've been left with a purpose, and we need to know as we've been talking about our first citizenship now. We have new citizenship. It's in the kingdom of God. And therefore, the rule of the day is the kingdom values that Jesus taught us in his word, that we are to live like Jesus, called and created us to live, and he's made a way by his spirit's power for us to live. And so it's important that we understand this. I believe there are a few foundational messages, a few things that, that will weigh very heavy on my heart when I'm prepared to speak them out to you. And this message is one of them. It's one of the heaviest messages that's weighed in my heart, not because I'm nervous to share, not because I'm excited, because I believe that what we talk about today is so timely, is so important, is so vital for us in our lives and for the day in which we are living. The days that we live in today, do you realize this? That our God knows all things. That he knit us together in our mother's womb. He's ordained it for you to live in this season. I know some of you, you wish you didn't live in this season. You wish you lived in a different time, in a different place. But I want to tell you, this is what God has for you. He has you here for a reason. And if he has you here for a reason, then listen. Listen to what God's word has to say today because we need to experience a change deep within us. Um, and I believe that it starts today in his presence. Lord, meet us during this word, Lord God. I can't speak it out without your power and without your wisdom. So Holy Spirit, just lead these words now in Jesus' name. Amen. My daughter uh, has been one of the greatest blessings in my life, and, and my wife uh, will attest to the same. Uh, children are a gift from God, the Bible says. Sometimes when they're at Lily's age now and you have another one that you're trying to raise, they don't feel like a gift every day. So we had to remind her, I need to remind you of that today, honey. Uh, they're a gift from God, even when they don't want to go to Sunday school and when they're uh, crying and when they're making the baby cry, they're a gift from God. 
And we're learning so many things about God, about ourselves, when we raise our child, um, our children, but when we started to raise Lily. And one of the things that's amazing is how children from such a young age, before they could speak, before they can um, do so many other things, before they can even articulate themselves, they have a, a sense that they're born with of what's good and what's bad. Did you ever realize that? There are things that my son, who cannot even understand yet, he, he understands to be funny. One of them is that yesterday I was standing there and he looked at my face while I was talking to my wife and he just started cracking up, laughing. I don't know if that was a compliment or an uh, insult, but he did. And then I would put something in front of my face and I'd take it away and he would just crack up for like 20 minutes. My son's just cracking up. He's five months old and he just thinks it's the funniest thing in the world. There are things that I don't need to convince him or bad when he feels pain, when certain things happen, when he doesn't get to eat fast enough. He just instinctively knows what to do about that. He knows what's good and what's not so good. But something else happens as well, and I've learned it more as Lily is getting older. She doesn't read the Bible, believe it or not, as a two-year-old. She doesn't know God's laws yet. But my daughter has a sense that we never taught her of what's right and what's wrong. If she's done something wrong, she can sometimes have a sense that it isn't right. It is wrong. And I've wondered about this. And when we look at Romans chapter 2, I believe that God's word makes it very clear what's going on here. Look with me in Romans chapter 2, verses 14 and 15. Here's what it says. It says, even Gentiles who do not have God's written law show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts and that their own conscience and thoughts either accuse them or tell them what they're doing is right. You know, as I looked at this and as I thought about this, I realized my daughter is born with a conscience. She's born, and God's word says it like this, that you and I, we have been born in the image of God. We've been made in the image of God. And therefore, a part of that is stamped into our hearts and minds, and even before we know him, we have this knowledge and this understanding of what's right and what's wrong. Instinctively, it's built in to us. We call it our conscience. Now you'd say, Pastor, what are you talking about conscience? It sounds a little out there. and we, we need to look at God's word today. Yes, in God's word, in the New Testament, do you know that the word conscience is used 31 times in just the New Testament alone? This idea of a conscience is something that the, those that wrote the scriptures and those that walk with Jesus were very, very aware of. You see, your conscience, and if you're taking notes today, I encourage you uh, to do that. In fact, you have a bulletin. Turn it over. Uh, you'll see there's some lines here in the back. I would encourage you to write something, some of these things down because I do want you to reflect on them by the end uh, of our message. And know today that you're, you're going to get two things when you leave here today. You're going to get a check and a challenge. And so that's coming, and that's going to be there. And so be ready for that because we're going to take a challenge together as a body and I want you to commit to that and so make sure that you're following along and that you are really um, allowing the Lord to speak uh, through whatever said today from God's word. So conscience, if you want to know what that is, a quick definition, it is your inward sense of right or wrong. Your conscience is your inward sense of right or wrong. We are created in God's image, and therefore we have this inward sense of right or wrong. Some describe the conscience as this, the voice of God within us. That's how some people call the conscience, the voice of God within us. So when you look here, what Paul's saying in the book of Romans is that even Gentiles who don't have God's written law, they don't have this. They haven't seen it. They don't know it. They haven't read it. But somehow instinctively, they obey many of those things that God has called because 
God has written his law on their hearts and in their minds. And by that, it either accuses them or it excuses them. Do you realize that your conscience has the power to do this? To either accuse you or excuse you in what you are doing. And so we can understand this as we are children, we're growing up. We can understand that we have this inward sense of what's right and wrong. Are you following me today, church? Few of you are following me. Don't make me go back to the beginning again. We have a conscience. It's an inward sense of right or wrong. Another way that I'll say it, it's like a compass. It's like your moral compass. A compass is what navigates your life. It's what shows you which way you're supposed to go. It points out true north. And so in some ways when we're born, we have this inward sense of right or wrong. We have this inward sense of what we're doing. It's either good or bad. A great example of this is as you're a child and you grow up and you go out to the schoolyard. You start to spend time with other kids and other people. And as you're there and you're with them, you'll see that they start to do some things that you know in yourself just isn't wrong. Your parents never specifically told you you shouldn't do that. Am I making someone uncomfortable today? So you're like, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about. But you know it just isn't right. And so maybe you try to remove yourself from it at first, but then it happens again and you get a little closer and you start to partake in it. And before long, you don't feel wrong about it anymore. See, that's the conscience. That's a conscience trying to get your attention, trying to prick your heart and reveal to you what's happening isn't right. The conscience has the ability to, to prick you. And when you do what is wrong, especially as we are now in Christ, if you have a relationship with Jesus, we have the Holy Spirit dwelling inside of us. The Holy Spirit will prick our hearts as we sin. That sin troubles us because we know deep down we haven't done what's right in God's sight. And so we are hardwired. We have this in us. And it serves as our compass to lead and to guide us. So some of you would say, well, if that's the case, Pastor, then we just need to really trust in our conscience to, to lead the way. You know, many of us, we've really adopted, whether we believe it or not, this, this idea that we probably were conditioned with when we were very young. I think the greatest example of it is seen in a beloved Disney movie, Pinocchio. Anyone see Pinocchio? You know what I'm talking about here? There's a famous line there, and let's see if we can all say it out together. Let your conscience... Be your guide. Let your conscience be your guide. I'm going to call that the Jiminy Cricket theology lesson. Uh, that Jiminy Cricket says, just let your conscience be your guide. You're always going to have this understanding of what's right and what's wrong. And just follow your heart. Isn't that the mantra of the day that we live in today? Just follow your heart. If it feels right, it must be right. If it feels right on the inside, if it makes you happy, then do it. And so this idea of that, we could say, yeah, this is kind of the, the mentality much of the world has adopted. The only problem is it goes right in the face of what God's word says to us. Because you see, there's one thing about a conscience that we need to be very, very aware of. That your conscience is not your final authority on how to live your life. Your conscience cannot be your final authority on how you live your life. It would all be great if we just followed that inward compass if we don't have the first three chapters of the scriptures in Genesis 1 through 3. But what happened is that as we did follow, we chose the wrong route and brokenness came into our world through sin. And now we live in a broken creation. Now we live in a broken world. And because of the brokenness in this world, we see that the compass has really become shattered. We can't just trust following after our own thoughts, our own desires, our own sense of right and wrong. Because of that, 
we don't have the ability. Our, our, our conscience can change. Do you know that? Your conscience can literally change over time. Your conscience can be shaped and reshaped by your surroundings, by temptations, by other things that go on around you. A great example of this, and in a very unfortunate example, comes from my own family. I have someone in my family that when they were young, when they were a child, they started to play with matches. And I don't know if you've ever done that or you've ever caught one of your children doing that. But instinctively, you know something's wrong. And I'm sure that my family member did. The first time they did it, they did it privately. They did it without anyone knowing because they knew this wouldn't be approved of, even if the other members of my family did, told them that it was wrong and didn't even tell them it was wrong. They still knew instinctively they shouldn't be doing that. But what happens is they lit that first match and did it, and it felt wrong, and then they put it away, and they come back a day later, and they do it again, and it feels a little less wrong. You following me today? You do it again, and it feels less wrong. You do it again, and it feels less wrong. Before long, wrong, uh, long, it feels right. It feels fine. By that point in time, my family member had become so comfortable and so careless that they ended up catching themselves on fire. And for the rest of their life, they've been living with burns to start at their neck and go all the way down their body. They're living with a keen awareness of those scars. And I remember as a child being taught a very important lesson. You don't play with fire. You don't play with matches. You don't do those things. And yet, as a child, you can become so curious. You could want to do those very same things. So it's so important that we understand just how much our conscience can erode away in certain areas. It can lead us towards disasters and compromises. Your conscience can also become compromised when it becomes eroded away. See, over continued sin, over continually doing that which you should not do, your conscience in that area of your life, that inward sign, or even the Holy Spirit trying to speak to you and tell you, don't do that. The voice of God trying to stop you. You no longer feel the prick anymore. You become desensitized to it. And before long, it erodes away. Before long, what was wrong now feels fine or even right. You see, whenever we allow this to happen, it becomes very dangerous. So not only do individuals have a conscience, but groups of people have a collective conscience. There's a collective sense. Let's say you're in a family of what's right and what's wrong, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. In every family that's here and represented, you have norms, you have values, you have things that shape your sense of right and wrong, what you should do and what you should not do. And it isn't because there's a list of things listed on the walls of your house. It's because it's just the sense of it. And you'll know when it's been violated, if someone does or says something that they shouldn't do or say. You know, realize, oh, that's violated our family conscience. And so eventually, parents, as you learn this long uh, enough, and when that's violated enough, there start to become rules. There start to be things that you're not allowed to do. No one starts out with a list of rules. We don't have a list of rules for our children yet. But you know what will happen? Our children will start to test some things. They'll start to carry around, you know, their little potty to a place and set it there and start climbing on it. We didn't know we had to put a rule and make a rule. You're not allowed to carry it out of the bathroom and stand on it and pull things off shelves. But you learn. Am I getting too personal? You learn these things. You establish rules. You establish these boundaries. Why? Because the collective conscience is broken, has been violated, needs to be protected. I think about this because a couple days ago we took our daughter to Chuck E. Cheese for the first time. Parents, pray for us when we go to Chuck E. Cheese. Whew. Yeah, it is scary. Um, 
But I, I was kind of terrified with what happened, and I, I'm waiting to get to let Lily get onto a ride. I didn't ride the ride myself. Um, and I'm waiting for her to get on, and there's a little kid that's n- maybe not any older than her there. And the ride isn't working the way, or it ends, and he's not happy, and he starts cursing. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm, he's as tall as Lily, and, and, I, and I was just amazed that he had such a colorful vocabulary first, and I'm like praying that my daughter didn't hear or pick up on any of it. And I realized, you know, as I'm thinking about this message today, it's the, the, the collective conscience of whatever family he is a part of. I didn't meet his parents or know them, but somehow that is, that is tolerated and even allowed. Um, and so it's just continued. So you'll see that there is different conscience for different groups of people. And so when that's violated or what becomes tolerated becomes a part of the collective conscience of that family, those that form it, those that set it out, those that shape the collective conscience of your life or of a group of people, any group of people, it's really determined by the highest authority. Whoever serves and sits as the highest authority is the one who can shape then the collective conscience of a group of people or of an individual. And so as that happens, you'll see that groups of people, families can have a conscience, but I want you to also realize that nations, entire people, can have a conscience, a collective sense of what's right and what's wrong. They can have a sense of what's good and what's bad. It's so important to understand this because we see example of it over and over and over again among the people of God, among the nation of Israel in the Old Testament scriptures. If you want to see a case study of the erosion of a national conscience, look no further than the people of God. Look no further than the nation of Israel. Because you see, they had a highest authority. And that was the one that was meant to shape their national conscience, their national sense of what was right or wrong. But eventually, what happened over time? They continued to turn away. They continued to violate that. And before long, God then had to establish the Ten Commandments and rules and ways. And we think this is because God is angry. No, it's because he's trying with everything in himself to have relationship with his people. And so he's establishing. This is what relationship can look like. This is what it's looked like to be a part of the family. You want to be a part of this family? This is how we are a part of the family. This is what we're called to do. This is how we're called to live. And people would then turn their attention and affections away from God time and time again. And you'd look, and I think one of the most terrifying things that continued to happen among the people of God is when they continued to demand that God would give them a king. You see, blessed is the nation whose king is the Lord. Blessed is the nation. But you know what happened? They didn't feel like it was a blessing that God was their king. You know what they said time and again? We want a real king. You know, give us a real king like the other nations have. Give us a real king. We want a king like they have a king. And whenever Samuel, who we were talking about at the beginning, that's why I said it comes full circle, is standing before the Lord, so broken by the fact that they have rejected him, they've rejected other leadership and other voices and demanded a king, the Lord says, it's not you they've come against. It's not you they've rejected. It's me they've rejected, Samuel. They've rejected me as their king. You see, he was meant to be their king. The Lord has always meant to have been the king of his people, but they wanted a real king like all the other nations had. But there was a season, we see it in the book of Judges, where there was no king in Israel. And look what it says here. This passage of scripture should just be a summary statement for the entirety of the nation of Israel, basically, throughout the Old Testament as we see it. In those days, Israel had no king, because once they rejected God as their king, 
Any other king was a lesser king. And all the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. There's a statement that you need to remember. This will help it stick to you today and this week. Where there is no king, there is no compass. When there is no king, there is no compass. And so when they lost their king, when they gave up their king, they were really forfeiting their compass. A compass is meant to serve as true north, direction for their lives. The Bible literally says there was no king, and therefore there was no sense of direction. The people did what was right in their own eyes. They followed their own way. I'm going to tell you that I could, I don't even know how to use a compass that well, so I won't pretend that I do. I just think it looks cool and have it in my office. <clears throat> but if I were to use one and I was to understand how a compass works, it's meant to navigate me to true north. It's always meant to point to true north so you can always have a sense of where true north is and where you're going. If you were to take away this compass and I was to go outside, it doesn't matter how much of an expert navigator I was, if I don't have that continued sense of true north, I will always get off course. You say, oh, no, but, you know, there are people. They could look at the sun, and they could look at the moon. They can look at, yeah, but guess what? There's always storms. There's always clouds. There's always things that will come to disorient you. And it becomes such a challenge to stay on track. The people of God, they ultimately got rid of their king, so they lost their compass. They lost their moral sense of right and wrong. They did whatever was right in their own eyes. And as a nation, they began to fall apart as a people. They began to unravel all around because of what was taking place. You got to see this happen just as we talked at the beginning of the message while the choir was still up here. The, the man Eli, the, those that were leaders in the day, even the priests, those that were seeking the heart of God, or were supposed to be, those that were worshiping the Lord and leading in worship, their hearts were far from God. They were doing whatever was right in their own eyes, and because of that, they weren't able to hear the voice of God as they once did. God's looking for those who walk humbly before him and can hear his voice and respond to what God wants to do. That's why he rose up prophets eventually. As these kings would ultimately lead the people away, God had to send prophets that would speak out his word and call them back to the right path, back to true north, back to the right way for them to operate. There's a, a tragic example we see. It's in the life of Solomon. King Solomon, the wisest and richest man to ever live, the Bible believes, he had more wisdom and more money than you and I will ever have. And yet he made such foolish decisions. What happened? He came into power and God spoke to him and gave him exact direction. And one of the specific things he was told, do not go after these foreign women from these other lands and these other nations because they're going to take your heart and lead you away from me. They're going to lead you away. So what does he do? He entertains going against what God had said. He entertains it. He does it a little bit, and it probably pricked him a little bit on the inside, just like it can for so many of us. Then he does it again, and it doesn't prick as bad. And before long, he had amassed so many concubines, so many wives from so many places that you'd be amazed to say, did you ever hear what God had told you? It was a slow fade away from God's intended path, and before long, he was off course. But he was still doing his best to worship the Lord and to build the temple and to do all these amazing things. But then one of them comes to him. Solomon, you know I love you. You know I care for you. You got all these places you're worshiping your God, but I don't have anywhere to worship my God. Can I just put up one teeny tiny idol? Just one place of worship? Don't you love me? Okay, well, just one. Don't tell anyone else. Don't tell any other wives. 
oh, hey, I heard, you know, before long, he allows there to be worship in the high place, in the altars, in the place of worship of the Lord. He allows it to be tolerated. A little more time goes by. Then before long, another one, and another one, another one. By the time we get towards the end of Solomon's reign, the high places, the places of worship, the altars that were set apart to worship God were filled with other idols, were filled with Asherah pools, were filled with all worship of all other gods in the nation of Israel. Their hearts were completely turned away from God. Here's what I'll tell you. Here's a way to capture what happened there. It's that the one who controls the altar controls the outcome. The one who controls the altar controls ultimately the outcome of what happens. This is what was true in Solomon's day. This is what's true time and again among the people of God. It's, you check what's happening at the place of worship. You look at what's truly being worshipped and who's being worshipped, and it will point to the outcome that's going to happen. When the altar's empty, when the Lord is not being worshipped, whenever he's not being lifted up, when he's not being honored, the outcome is complete collapse, calamity issues, and ultimately captivity. That's what happened to the people of God. They were brought into bondage and slavery because the one who controlled the altar controlled the outcome, and they continued to give up control of that precious place. They continued to worship other things, other gods, other people, and they looked past the Lord. As a nation, their conscience, their sense of right and wrong eroded away to the point where they were calling what was evil good and what was good evil. That's what happened among the people. The reason I tell you that, the reason why that's so important is because we can miss it. And we don't even realize what has eroded away. There is a potent, I'll call it, verse of scripture that we see by one of the prophets as he's speaking to the nation of Israel, as he's calling them out into account on what has happened. And I've never thought it would ever be spoken out in a sermon, but here it is. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 3. This is the prophet speaking to the people of Israel. Yet you had a harlot's forehead, and you refused to be ashamed. Pastor, what's this all about? The imagery here of what's happened. Some of you, if you're reading it in your Bible right now, or you go and check on it later, here's what it says. You have the brazen look of a prostitute, and you refuse to be ashamed of what you've done. What this is saying, and what God's saying to his people in simple terms is you have lost your ability to blush. You've lost your ability to blush. The things that used to bring you shame, the things you used to knew, know were wrong, through you continually doing it over and over and over again, you have this look on you now where you don't even, you're not even phased by it. He said you have a harlot's forehead. You have the, the face of someone who has defiled themselves and no longer... Does it even hurt? No longer are you even moved by it. No longer do you even see any shame in it. He said, this is what happened to this people because of it. They're actually seeing what is wrong as right, what is evil as good. And because of it, the whole people fall under judgment. They eventually get carried into captivity of all kinds, not just a captivity to, to, to physical power, but captivity to sin and addiction and all kinds of detestable things that happened. They fell into captivity in every way, and they were carried off into Babylon. The reason I'm telling you that, and what should wake us up, church, as a people and as a nation, is that what happened in Israel, what happened to that nation 
It's happening and has been happening right in our own forefront, right in our own lifetime, right in our own world that we're living in. Do you know that America has a conscience and has had a collective sense of what's right and wrong? And do you realize that it has eroded away over time? And it's so different today than it was 50 years ago, 100 years ago, 150 years ago. When our nation was founded, it's been an eroding way. It's been a slow fading, but that fading is now happening in greater, greater intensity. And so many, we say, what is going on? What has happened? Well, let's go back and let's understand what shapes a conscience. The highest authority. The highest authority in our land were leaders that were appointed, that would ultimately serve. But do you realize something about them? Who was the highest authority in their lives? The Lord. So when we say that our nation was founded on Christian principles, on Judeo-Christian values, it was founded on values that very much line up with God's word. And it wasn't because these men said, well, let's figure out what government looks like. Let's go to the... No, it's because their conscience was shaped by this. They had this deep sense in them of what was right and what was wrong. And eventually it made way for so many things even that had not yet caught up in time. Issues of human rights, issues, of slavery, these kinds of things, that over time, it was out of this conscience that at one point in time, they they said it was okay and that it was fine, they overlooked, but eventually, all the way up through, Abraham Lincoln and those that served to to bring freedom and and abolitionists that, that served to bring freedom to slavery, it was out of this that they started to realize, no, these values have to shape everything. And so even through the first 100 years, 50, 70 years as a nation, we are seeing how these values that we were one nation under God, we realized that even our leaders were under the authority of a creator. We saw it in the very founding documents, right? That we see these truths to be self-evident. All men are created equal. We see that we have been endowed by our creator with rights. Like, Like that kind of language isn't just flowery language. It flowed from the hearts of people who signed that and said yes and amen. That's what we stand on. So what's happening? The national conscience is changing over time. And it's, it's incredible to see just how quickly it's happened in such a short period of time. Because we see a few things that have been changing and shifting and have even been under discussion in recent years. One of them has to do with our Pledge of Allegiance in two words. Does anyone know what the two words are that people seem to have an issue with? Under God, right? Do you know when those two words were added to our Pledge of Allegiance? 1954 by Dwight Eisenhower. They were actually added then. They were added in there, and you know why they were added in there? Because the people had realized we'd been living this way for so long that we better actually say something and make a declaration about it. But also we were in the middle of the Cold War against um, the Russians and the Soviets, and there's in the midst of all that, they, they touted communism, which ultimately was atheism, which ultimately was this absence of God from their government. And whenever America looked and we stood, we said, you know what? No, we don't stand for that. We are one nation under God. We are indivisible. We believe in justice for all. We believe these things. We hold these kinds of truths. And we all realize and we stand under them. What happens two years later in 1956? On every coin, on every dollar bill, it was determined in God we trust. Now, some of you might have coins that say it before that. Ever since the 1800s, they were printing it on certain coins. 
and in certain pieces of currency. But by 1956, on, on, in fact, I have the date here in case you're interested to know it. No, I'm not going to find the date. Don't worry about it. It was in 1956. I believe it was in December. That it was said, not only should it, it must be on every piece of currency that we would declare what we hold to be evident, what we hold to be true. In God, we trust. That's why you have, you know, um, the Declaration, not Declaration of Independence, that's why you have the Ten Commandments in public places, and especially in government places. That's why all these things are there. What was on the walls, what were down the halls, what's in everyone's pocket, what's there, every beginning of every day in school, it was people just stating and placing in places what they held so dear in their hearts. It wasn't that the nation is a person that just makes these decisions. It's a collective group of people and the national conscience stood behind all those values. But something has been shifting. Something has been changing. You know, I was telling our, our pastors what we were going to speak on and one of them pointed out to me, they said, you know, it's amazing that as soon as you make, we make a declaration at times, it's right then that the enemy starts to attack. Look what's happened since 1956. I mean, just look what's happened over the last 50, 60 years and how much has changed and how much comes back. Oh, get those Ten Commandments out of there. We need separation of church and state. We need to, you know, make sure that, that the government is protected from churches. Now, no, you don't remember. This is how the nation was founded, that the churches needed protection from the government. And therefore, we founded a nation on this idea of religious freedom and liberty. The, the separation of church and state, the whole idea was, was, it, was to protect the church from the government. No, 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 the government needs to be protected from the churches. we got to make sure these dividing lines are very clear. Everything's been flipped on its head, and we can just sit back, and we can feel like, has the wool been pulled over our eyes? What has happened? You know what's happened? An erosion of the national conscience. Before long, what was tolerated, what was allowed, what continued to seep in, values that were so contrary. We started to trust more in ourselves and more in our strength, more in our ability. And before long, we threw out the compass. We said, Whatever is normal is right. Whatever feels normal, whatever feels good to you is good for all. You see, what happened is we went to this idea of really making morality whatever was normal. We were normalizing morality. We were normalizing what was right and wrong. And here's how we did it. And this is how they have done it. They take surveys, basically. And they say, listen, is this normal for all of us? If it's normal, then it's good. Because you need to be the truest version of yourself. Have you ever heard that? This is it. If it's normal, then it's good. And therefore, you need to embrace it with everything that you have because it's normal. Here's the problem with that. I need every single person participating. You with me? Have you ever lied in your whole entire life once, at least once? If you have, I need you to put your hand up right now. Come on, don't let lightning strike you in God's house right now. If you've ever lied once in your life, come on. Yeah. Well, guess what? It's normal. So it's good. And it's right. You should embrace that. You say, oh, I know a lot of people that are running for office. They've been embracing it. Uh, no, but we live that way, don't we? It's not a big deal. This isn't a big deal. There's a problem with it. We don't go back to what's normal and say that's right or wrong because we are broken. The world is broken. So the new normal is brokenness. The new normal is dysfunction. We are prone to wonder. We are prone for our hearts to go away from God's ways. It's happened like that since the beginning. Instead, we always have to appeal back. We always have to run back to our compass and say, which way is right? And this isn't our compass. This is our compass. 
This in God's Holy Spirit that dwells in us comes as we come back and say, this is what feels right, but is this what is right? Whenever God is king, he's over all, above all. When we look to him first, when we allow his word to be our guide, then we can continue to find true north. If not, we're going to go in any which way. I'm going to invite Pastor Rick to come at this time. These are the days we're living in as a nation. And it gets so bad that we're eventually now calling what is evil in God's sight good and what's good in God's sight evil. You see it. It's being taken down in every area, in every way. You'll see how the national conscience has shifted on issues, issues that are so important to us. One of, I think, the, the, the biggest pictures of this change in a national conscience is in the issue of abortion. Before the Roe v. Wade verdict, the consensus, the national conscience was that, no, we wouldn't take a life of one in the womb. That decision had big ripple effects all across our nation. And before long, the national conscience shifted. Yes, there's all these reasons why that would be acceptable. And it's not just acceptable. Now it needs to be protected. Now it needs to be encouraged. Now it needs to be, it just happens that way. But what's amazing is that in just the last few years, I believe truly that the national conscience is shifting again. They may not be shifting in a lot of other areas, but in that area of abortion. You know why? Because they're able to see that this small layer of skin that separates that life from this world, what's going on behind the scenes is nothing more than a life. A life that can exist outside that womb. A life that's been formed and created, and those of us know it, created in the image of God. There's now news articles. I'm hearing about a little baby that's in the womb at 19 weeks or something, clapping in the womb. Beautiful, amazing. We could see that now. They couldn't see it before. And so you're seeing people in the national conscience, and watch, I think that will shift. You can say, well, pastor, that's encouraging. Guess what? That's only one part. If that was the only thing that was wrong with our nation and our national conscience, then we'd have reason to celebrate. That is reason to celebrate because it's life. But there's so many other areas that God has to show up where we need to see us as a nation, as a people, return to the Lord. We need to see revival break out in our land. I want to tell you that as we come to this election that's coming up, it's so important, it's so vital for us to understand um, all that's at stake. Because I told you that it's the highest authorities among a group of people or an individual that help form the collective conscience. That's why people are talking about this election. That's why people are concerned every time it comes time to vote who will be our next commander-in-chief in the White House. In this election you're hearing as well. You're hearing these statements about, well, not just the person, but think about the platform. Think about this and the Supreme Court. Well, that is important for you to be praying about and weighing because this is the highest court of the land. And those that will be appointed Supreme Court justices, they help form laws. They help form, make decisions. Those decisions absolutely shape the national conscience. And actually they are shaped by the national conscience or by the conscience of those in power and in leadership. See, Pastor, who do I vote for? That's for you to pray about. That's for you to seek the face of God on. But you need to know that those that we elect, those that we allow our voice to stand for, they're going to be a part of shaping the national conscience. So we must pray. If it was easy, if it was simple, we wouldn't be feeling the anxiety, the tension. We wouldn't be feeling so many of the things that we're feeling right now. This is a matter of prayer. I would challenge you even a matter of fasting for you to seek God's will, for you to understand the issues, for you to understand exactly what each person stands for, stands against, and for you to then vote 
as you come to God's word and say, Lord, how does this line up? If it was only one or two issues, it'd be something, but it's many issues, many things. So you have to weigh those things and weigh the heart of God and then vote and make your voice heard. I told you before we ended, I'm going to give you a check and a challenge. Here's the check. You can get so worried about what's happening in our nation. You can get so worried what's happening in the collective conscience of the culture around us. And you know what? There's a lot of things to be troubled about. But I want you, first and foremost, you better be more troubled by your own sin than you are by the sins of everyone else. You better be troubled and convicted by that and not just be convicted by what's happening in our world. I think it's so easy for us to become hypocrites, church. It's so easy for us to look there and to point the finger and say, look what's happening there while we are allowing and tolerating things in our own lives that don't please the heart of God. And so what we need to do, the first check that you have here is asking this question, has my conscience been compromised, Lord? Is there an area of my life that I have stopped listening to the Holy Spirit and I've continued to repeat and no longer, I'm desensitized to it today, Lord. I believe that part of what God brought us through right before we opened his word was he just wanted to bring us through a time where he just wanted to push all that junk out onto the floor so you could sift through it and realize, Lord, I don't want that anymore. That he can make you, if you want, Lord, speak to me, speak to me and speak to us, then it's going to require you allowing the Holy Spirit access to every part of your heart and life and saying, Lord, point out the ways that don't please your heart. Look to the Lord's word. Go to the Sermon on the Mount. Go to Matthew chapter 5. Read through what Jesus said it looked like to live in the kingdom. That's his teaching on the kingdom. Kingdom living? You want to know kingdom living? It's right there in the Sermon on the Mount. Look no further. That's how we live as citizens of the kingdom of God. And as we're going to explore that over the next several weeks, you can begin to pray through that. How Jesus calls us to live, how he calls us to trust, how he calls us to respond to things that don't make us comfortable, how he calls us to be as citizens of his kingdom, as him, as our king. This is how he calls us in our lives to be shaped. But the first thing that we need is to have a kingdom conscience. Here's what Martin Luther famously said as he looked at the challenges of the world around him as he looked at how the world could ebb and flow and how it's so easy that as the national conscience goes one way and the kingdom conscience is another, that you could become very uncomfortable because no longer does the national conscience support the kingdom conscience. There are times that the things that matter most to the heart of God are so different than what's happening in the hearts of the world around us that we'll allow ourselves to drift into that kind of thinking and we'll start tolerating the things that God doesn't tolerate. But here's what Martin Luther said. And I believe this is our challenge. This is our check in our own hearts. Martin Luther famously said, my conscience is held captive by the word of God. And to act against it is neither right nor safe. My conscience is held captive by the word of God. Isn't that beautiful? And so this, we need not to have just a conscience of this world. We need to have a kingdom conscience that is captivated by God's word. And as we do that, without that, it's, it, it really can't happen. Where We're not going to be able to live out the values of the kingdom. We can't have kingdom living without a kingdom conscience, without allowing God's word and the Holy Spirit to lead us, speak to us, guide us, show us right, show us wrong, and allow us to have the boldness, the courage, and take the risk to stand, regardless of who's standing with us. 
The reason, the only thing that separates us from now and 50 years ago, and some of you were there 50 years ago, is this. As you take the same stand you were going to take then, not as many people are standing with you. So you ask God for the courage to stand then and stand there. There's an amazing book called Standing in Babylon by Larry Osborne. I'd encourage you to write that down if you'd want to check it out. But it talks about what happened in Babylon. And Daniel was in Babylon. He was a prophet. He was a man after God's heart. And here's what Larry Osborne says in his book, that Daniel found a way in a culture far more wicked than anything we face to glorify and serve God with such integrity and power that kings and peasants in an entire nation turn to acknowledge the splendor of our living God. Do you know this? That if you and I would become that generation, that if we would be that people, that if we lived with such a dependency on God, that we live to glorify and serve him with integrity, that we would see those in every area of our lives would take notice and they would recognize the power of our living God. He can do it again. Are you convinced of it? I'm convinced of it. He can do it again. He can do it in our day. He can do it right here and he can begin it with us. It's important for us to pray. It's important for us to pray who would be in leadership. But here's one of the things you remember as you pray. God is in control of who's in control. Remember God's word and his promise is true that the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord. God is in control. Whoever gets into control, and we're going to trust that God has the power and ability even to shape the hearts of those in the highest places so that they will serve and know him. That's the check. Check your conscience. Check and allow the Holy Spirit to point out those areas in your own life. And here's the challenge. The challenge is that you and I would be a praying people. We'd pray and intercede for our nation. That just as Daniel did, we would be a people that are interceding, that are praying regularly, that aren't willing to allow that to be compromised. There were different times during the day that Daniel would stop everything he was doing, even when it was illegal, and he would go, and he would go to his place of prayer, and he would seek the face of God. And he would seek it on behalf of his people. Here's what God's word says to us in 2 Chronicles chapter 14. If my people, not if the Supreme Court, not if our next president, not if our leaders, not if, if my people, and guess what? That's you and me who are called by my name, will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and I will forgive their sins and I will even restore their land. Church, this is a promise for you and I. It's a challenge for you and I. It's what you and I are called to. And so would you take time? Here's what the challenge will be. Will you set, take your phone, take an alarm, take whatever you carry with you regularly. Will you set an alarm? for 7.14 a.m. and 7.14 p.m.? And will you twice a day, up until our next election here on November 8th, will you stop everything you're doing at those two times and would you intercede for our land? Would you intercede for our nation? Would you intercede for those that are in the highest places of leadership? Would you be of those that are humbling ourselves and praying and seeking God's face? And I'm going to believe that as we do it, even if we're a remnant, even if we're the only ones doing it, that God will be true to his word, that he will hear from heaven, he will forgive our sins, and he will restore our land. You know, I, I love this verse, and we talk about this verse a lot. Have you ever seen the next verse? Just as beautiful. Here's what the Lord says in Chronicles 2 or 7.15, my eyes will be open and my ears attentive to every prayer made in this place. And I'm believing that that's God's truth and his promise for us, that God will hear us as we call out to him. So that's your check. 
and that's your challenge. Your check is that you'd allow, Lord, in my own life, may I turn from wickedness, may I humble myself, may I allow your Holy Spirit to speak to me again. And the challenge is that you'll be one like Daniel in his generation was, to be on his face, interceding for his people, for his nation, for his land. And as we see that happen, God will do what he has always done. He will respond. So would you stand with me, church? I'm going to pray for you. We're going to pray and ask the Lord just to seal this word in our hearts to allow us to be led by this. And so just begin to pray right now. And I'm going to pray for you. Lord Jesus, we come before you and we thank you today, Lord God, that you are on your throne. Lord God, we thank you today, Lord, that you are our unmovable, unshakable God. We thank you, Lord, that everything else in this world has changed. Even the national conscience of America has shifted and changed and eroded over time, Lord. But you are unchangeable, Lord God. You are unshakable, Lord. These things don't shake you the way that they shake us, Lord God. And so we pray today that, Lord, we would be keenly aware of your word. Lord God, we would allow ourselves to come under your lordship in every single way that we would allow our conscience to be shaped by your word by your holy spirit speaking to us leading us and guiding us lord just as we began we end holy spirit speak to us speak to us and allow us to walk in whatever it is that you have for us lord help us to turn from whatever things might block your voice in our lives and help us to run towards the things that you have for us to do lord i pray for boldness lord god just as those that left our last service lord god walked out with what i pray a spirit of boldness comes over your people that lord god we wouldn't do it to be divisive we wouldn't do it to be anything else but that lord we would not be ashamed of the gospel we would not be ashamed of who we worship that we would not be ashamed just like daniel wasn't just like david wasn't just like so many, Lord, we read in your word, we're not, that we would never be ashamed of who you are as our King and as our Lord. So we invite you to lead us and to guide us. We invite you to shape our lives in every way. And Lord, for you to point out the areas that we are to walk with you closer. So Lord, we also commit as a people and as a nation, Lord God, that we will be those that stop and we will be those that pray. That we will intercede, Lord God. I pray that not just for these next few weeks, Lord God, but would it become a way of life that, Lord, every day at that time, Lord, we would begin to stop everything and pray and intercede for our nation, for our land, Lord God, and for our future. Lord God, regardless of what happens around us, Lord God, Lord, this heart and this life, we will serve you, Lord God. So come and have your way. Lord, burn that fire deep within us. Set a fire in our hearts, we pray. And may it carry us forward in Jesus' mighty name. Amen and amen. Amen.